my weekly's magical flying bookshop your feel-good fiction podcast sponsored by pavers pop on your favorite pair of slippers curl up in the comfiest chair and listen to your favorite authors chat away in my weekly's magical flying bookshop landing wherever you are so come on in and join me claire gill our bookshop host as we hear from one of my weekly's favorite authors like any good story there are three parts to our podcast in the first chapter we kick off with a short story or an extract from our guest's latest book the middle chatty chapter is quiz the author where the author answers all your questions followed by book post our final cozy chapter with a roundup of the hotly tipped book of the week this week we are joined by the talented dr hillary jones 32 years on tv a face everyone knows a doctor for over four decades with an mbe for public service broadcasting and medical practices dr hillary jones is a name everyone knows he's written various non-fiction books from family health to stress. His passion is charities and works consistently for them. He's not afraid to say what he thinks and was the voice of wisdom and calm when the world went into disarray during the pandemic. The voice of reason that you wished was your next door neighbor. It was during this time that Dr. Hillary dipped his toes into the cauldron of fiction, the magical mesmerizing creative waters where he conjured up his first novel, a historical saga, Frontline. Welcome, Dr. Hillary, to my weekly Magical Flying Bookshop. Do come in. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Claire. It's a pleasure to be here. Chapter one, Reading Corner. Make yourself at home with a comfy chair and a cuppa as Hillary reads you an extract from his book, Frontline. My weekly prides itself on its fabulous fiction. Take it away, Hillary. Grace was simply extraordinary. Unstoppable, uninhibited, charismatic Grace, Grace the Rebel. Arthur would never openly admit that she was his favourite of the seven children, and now she was leaving him, doing what he'd hoped none of his children would ever do. So far, he'd managed that. No son of his had enlisted. As he thought about Grace now, he turned away from the window and dabbed at the tears running down his cheeks with his sleeve. He couldn't afford to let Dorothy know he was wrestling with contrasting emotions. It had been hard enough dealing with his wife's distress and despair at Grace's departure, and he didn't want to make matters worse. She was barely 16, mature beyond her years, and every bit a woman, she was still his precious, headstrong daughter. His paternal love screamed at him to protect her, but Arthur knew that love meant many different things, and that it also included giving the people you love their freedom. While Grace was just a little bird, vulnerable and dainty, her feathers were simply too bright, her spirit too wild, and her song too sweet to be caged any longer. Dorothy had broken down when they saw her off at the railway station in Cheltenham. Please don't go, Grace. I forbid you. I'm your mother. You must... Arthur had put his free arm around her and said, Now, now, let her go. She'll do good work and come back home afterwards. Yes, Mummy, said Grace kindly, though Arthur could hear her impatience. Please listen to Daddy. I'll be back before you know it. Wearing her bright red military-style tunic top and long khaki skirt, she'd looked every part the proud nursing professional. 
Her silky chestnut hair cascaded down her back and across her shoulders, and she clutched the leather valise they had purchased for her as if she would never let it out of her sight. That one precious case held all her essential nursing equipment, together with a few personal items she'd carefully selected for her adventure. Arthur privately cursed the first aid nursing yeomanry group for tempting her away from him. At the same time, he was immensely proud of her convictions and sheer gutsiness. It had never even crossed his mind that it would be a daughter, not a son, who would steadfastly defy his wishes. He and Dorothy had tried hard enough to talk her out of the caper, but Grace had been utterly determined. Despite the many accolades she'd won both academically and otherwise at Cheltenham Ladies' College, she'd left school as soon as she'd felt it had nothing further to offer her. She'd obtained her nursing association qualifications a year later. Then, making full use of her considerable horse-riding skills, she'd joined the FANY and was now heading somewhere on the border of France and Belgium, where the British Expeditionary Force had been sent to repel the invasion by the German aggressors. The First Aid Nursing Yeomanry had been founded seven years ago as a first aid link between field hospitals and wherever any fighting was, and, as a yeomanry regiment, its members were mounted on horseback. This aspect had appealed to Grace just as much as being able to rescue the wounded and giving first aid treatment on the spot. The lecture she had attended given by the two formidable women who ran the organisation, Grace MacDougall and Lillian Franklin, had inspired her. After all, a single rider could reach a wounded soldier much faster than any horse-drawn ambulance. This was exactly the kind of adventure she craved. Arthur would never forget his last sighting of her. He was proud and he knew how vital her work would be. She would save lives, she would save limbs, he thought, as his left leg twinged. But selfishly, he wanted her to stay. As the train had pulled slowly away from the platform, her innocent heart-shaped face with its beautiful wide cheekbones appeared at an open carriage window and blew them a kiss goodbye. Those sparkling green eyes and that sweet button nose, that broad generous smile and that flash of perfectly white teeth, it pulled on his heartstrings. Though he was apprehensive, he didn't seriously consider that his beloved daughter could be in any great danger. According to his peers in the local community and at Westminster, Most people imagine the skirmish in Europe would be over by Christmas anyway. Thanks for that fabulous extract, Hilary. We can't wait to hear some more about this new novel after this short break. We hope you're enjoying My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. Whether you're curled up at home in your favourite pair of slippers or listening as you stroll in the perfect pair of comfortable shoes. We're sponsored by Pavers, the family-run shoe company, founded by Kathy Paver in 1971. Oh, happy 50th birthday, Pavers! With hundreds of styles available for women and men, Pavers prides himself on having a wide range of sizes available, 1 to 10 for women and 6 to 14 for men, as well as a huge range of widths for each size and style, all so that you can find your perfect style. And you can feel good about shopping there too. Pavers is the first major shoe retailer to achieve carbon neutral international certification and has given away more than a million pounds to date through the Pavers Foundation, where employees can apply for grants for their local community. Plus, until the end of August 2022, My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop listeners can get free delivery. Just quote, Weekly 1, that's W-E-E-K-L-Y 1, as in the number 1, when you order. So whether you're tucked up at home, out for a walk, 
heading into the office, or dressing up for a special occasion. Find your perfect style at pavers.co.uk. That's P-A-V-E-R-S.co.uk. Now, let me top up my tea and then let's get back to the episode. Chapter two, quiz the author. This is the chapter where you get to quiz your favourite author. And don't forget, you can send in your questions for future guests. Leave a voicemail on 01382 575 486 or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk or just send an email to that address with your question. Follow us on social media to find out who our next guests are or head over to the website www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Here we are and on our bookshelf with its dramatic cover is Frontline. Firstly, I don't feel like I need to give you an introduction because when talking to family and friends, yours is the one name where everyone went, oh, him, and smiled. Yet actually, you do need an introduction and deservedly so because this is a new venture for you. Writing is no stranger for you, but you've gone from writing about blackheads and the journey of the human body in a day in your life to historical family saga. Frontline is your first instalment of an exhilarating new family saga with a unique medical angle. This debut novel focuses on a mysterious and deadly new pandemic sweeping the trenches of the First World War France. As the blurb says, a sweeping drama set on the battlefields of Europe as a global influenza pandemic looms. Frontline is the first book in a series charting the rise of a prominent British medical family in the 20th century. I have to say, I found it a very moving book. The way that you started off with Will and Grace's childhoods and how this impacted later on. The whole storyline of the aristocrat's daughter joining the war effort as a nurse, the field hospital setting in rural France, the growing friendship and something more perhaps of Will, the rumours of armistice and a mystery respiratory illness, the Spanish flu. Frontline for me was the kind of novel where you stop everything to finish it. The kind of novel that takes you back to wondering about your own family during World War I, the great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers. Was it a deliberate decision to make it relatable so that people can reach back into their own past and tell us about your own family links, the German bullet from your grandfather, for example? Absolutely. My grandfather fought on the Somme. He was wounded three times uh, and sent back to fight in the trenches three times. On one occasion, he was hit in the neck by a German bullet. We still have the bullet in the family. Uh, he survived that, obviously, and uh, was sent back to fight. And a lot of soldiers were sent back to fight um, because they were short of uh, of men on the front line. Um, and so, so there was a family connection, and, and that, that was very um, important for me. I always imagine what it must have been like uh, in that situation. But um, And then the, the two, uh, the main characters, Will and Grace, they're very young when they enlist, um, Will is underage, in fact, but uh, that didn't seem to matter to the military at the time. And when you think about um, how young they were and what they went to do uh, compared to a lot of the youth of today, it makes you wonder, you know, how far we've come or perhaps regressed since then in terms of adventure and and bravery. And how was that experience of writing the dialogue that brought these characters to life? I mean, did you imagine your own grandfather when you were writing? 
Yes, uh, the dialogue actually is the way I wanted to bring the novel to life. It's about people. Uh, It's about the way they um, connect in times of hardship and, of course, in romance as well. Um, It's about the experience that they're all going through together as comrades, brothers in arms, um, in very difficult circumstances. And I kind of had in mind a sort of TV series in the future, as well as the novel, um, and I think one of the greatest compliments I've had so far in the reviews is from the uh, National Pensioners Association, who said it actually may not have the beautiful prose of Sebastian Fawkes, but it did one thing more. It made me cry. Um, and I think if you can uh, if you can derive emotions in people reading a novel, um, if you can make them laugh and cry, uh, then you're not going far wrong. I have to say, I thought your prose was beautiful. You know, it was so eloquently written that it it felt almost like you've been writing fiction your whole life. You know, I couldn't believe this was a fiction debut for you. And it did make me emotional because personally, you have a chapter based in Cannock Chase. Well, I'm born and bred from there. And Ah. my granddad, who unfortunately has passed away now, he actually trained there and um, we have a lot of family links and I have no grandparents to talk about these links with now so it was nice to read this section of uh, about Cannock Chase because apart from Tolkien who has um, wrote about that sort of area it, it does get left out sometimes and I wanted to know how important was it for you to put this location in and also have you actually visited there as well? Um, I, I have of course I've been to Cannock Chase um, I know that a lot of uh, military men cha- uh, trained there before they were sent off to, to France um, my grandfather actually went to uh, Ireland to train um, so I've tried to incorporate all of that and uh, I've, I've uh, included uh, the north of England in the book I've got some Welshmen in there, I've got some Irishmen in there I've got Frenchmen in there so I've tried to make it as international as possible and of course we've got the uh, we've got the evil German soldier as well Um, you could say slightly stereotype we've got some good Germans in there too so it's not all um, it's not all anti-German I thought it was lovely how you did get those regional variations in there. It was really needed because sometimes these areas do get missed out. So thank you for popping it in there with a local mention. Um, For me, you did bring the history to life, such as the gas types and the effects of the gas, the various army units. um, And it gave us that true sense of history. I remember history at school and I did enjoy it, but sometimes it could be a bit dry. Whereas you brought this emotion into it. You brought, it was a thought provoking history, if you like, of what had happened. How did you go about your research? Because obviously you're used to doing medical research, but this of course was slightly different this time. Yeah, I wanted to get the um, historical time frame uh, accurate. Um, so uh, I looked at some uh, history books. I looked. Uh, I went to museums. I went to um, uh, newspaper archives um, for a lot of the research, and I found it absolutely fascinating. So you're right about history; it can be very dry. But I hope I brought it to life in the dialogue and the experiences of, of what was going on in in those individual parts of France and and Belgium in the early parts of the war. I've talked about the casualty clearing stations, included civilians as well, and and the impact on civilians during the war. It was a very different war to the Second World War because it was was largely trench warfare, um, stretching from Switzerland all the way to the north coast um, and the the North Sea, so 450 miles of trenches. And it was a very static war, Um, terrible injuries. And and you're right, talking about the the poison gas, for example, which, which was used for the first time, and how people had to learn very quickly 
What was really interesting was how medical advances have to keep up with ever more lethal weapons used in every war. So it was a quick learning curve for people like Will and Grace. They had to learn how to counteract the effects of poison gas. And and then, of course, the pandemic, the, the Spanish flu of 1918 came along towards the end of the war. And again, they were learning very fast as to how to keep as many people as possible alive. I think it's just that as well. You brought the history into these people, like you say, into Will and Grace and their experiences that they were having. And what struck me is that you painted a really realistic picture of those times and you quickly became immersed in the characters. There was a particular emphasis on stoicism as well. And how difficult was it to write this, but also to make sure that the reader felt that sense of empathy, you know, to really get to the depths of the these characters and how it would be for these everyday people. Well, Will and Grace are, of course, very young uh, when they go to war. So there's a naivety and an innocence. Um, they want to do good work. And Will, uh, at a very young age, has the experience of losing his mother in childbirth. Um, and he's determined to make a difference. He can't understand at the age of seven why he's lost his mother um, from an infection. And he's determined to um, to do his bit to help uh, his fellow man. So he's always going to be interested in saving lives. So when he goes to, to war as a soldier, he finds it, it's not easy to kill, but much easier to save lives by, by becoming a stretcher bearer. But the average life of a stretcher bearer on the Somme was, was six weeks. Um, that was the life expectancy. And a young nurse, uh, Grace, um, she's coping with things she never... Uh, thought she would be coping with as, as, as a nurse treating so many injuries all at once. So this naivety and innocence, um, I, I think, um, was important to portray. It was about, you know, being faced with that level of adversity and, and horror, just getting on and dealing with it because you were the one there and you, you were the one who had to do it. And I think that often happens in life. I, th I think those people who are thrown in at the deep end, they have to swim or they sink. Um, and I, and I, I hope through the dialogue of, of young people, that comes across. I think it definitely did. And what came across as well within that is the realisation of how far we've come medically. I mean, how truly awful life was there. I mean, I've had two children and I must admit reading that first few chapters about the birth really made sort of the hairs on my arms stand up. And you weave in that medical sense right from chapter one. I have to say my mum's read it as well. She's really into a medical stuff and also a history. So she was loving all of those bits, all sort of not the gory bits, but you know what I mean, those kind of in-depth medical terms. And some of the descriptions were quite graphic, actually. And you've come away from that glorification of death, really, you know, about the actual reality. How important was it to get the medical side across and that reality that went with it? Well, they say that authors should write about what they know most about. And, and I certainly wanted to uh, put across the, the medical angle of, of, of injuries and, and what they meant and, and, and why we, we do certain things. So there's the scene of the two surgeons operating on a man who's got a head injury and they're talking about um, the, the lucid period um, when someone gets a blow on the head and um, there's, there's a rupture of an artery under the skull and there's um, a, a lucid interval of the patient is quite awake and says I'm fine and then um, uh, lapses into coma as a result of the increased pressure within the skull and the, and the skull has to be opened um, with a with a drill to allow the pressure uh, to be released so the two surgeons are chatting away and this is you know something I remember from my medical school training that the surgeons would chat away about all sorts of stuff whilst they're doing brain surgery um, and it's a, but it's absolutely true it, that that does happen it, there's a bit of black humor in there there's there's a bit of um, um, 
the, the, the chat between the doctors and the nurses, um, which I think reflects reality. But again, it was um, it was very much the research was fascinating, um, talking about uh, you know how they had to do amputations quickly because of the risk of infection setting in in a pre antibiotic era. So amputations had to be done quickly, and they used a guillotine to do it. They they didn't uh, saw a limb off; they used a guillotine uh, and then sewed the uh, soft tissues up afterwards. So I've put in a, a little bit of that, and and, and I, I hope um, it's not too gory. It's realistic, I think, and uh, um, it, 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 in a way, it kind of um, it shows this the scale of the injuries. I mean, forty one thousand people. Um, were left without limbs. Those were the, just the people who survived. There were about nine times as many as that who who died from their injuries uh, through loss of limbs. But um, forty one thousand people ended up with uh, prosthetic limbs, uh, which were at that stage in their infancy. So again, it was a, it was an area where medical advances had to to catch up quickly. I don't think it was too gory. I think you actually did balance it out. There was a slight, like you say, there was these nuggets of humour, wasn't there, peppered through. And I also think you got a few fluffy bits in. How was it to write about kind of the bubbling romance, if you like, compared to the rawness of the war? Yeah, I, I think um, every book needs a little romance and and and, and clearly in, uh, in, in a war situation, um, relationships can develop um, surprisingly. Um, when everything else is going on around them. So w- when I wrote the um, the scene where the romance is is consummated, um, it's one of the, I think these are the chapters that are often the hardest to write, but my 95-year-old mother read it, um, much to my sort of uh, trepidation and nervousness, and she said, you know, it's beautifully written and every teenager should read it. And I thought, I thought that's probably the greatest compliment I can possibly have. I do agree. And you know what, you've opened up this conversation because I was actually having the same conversation <laughs> with my mum and thinking about my teenage daughter, which was great to open up those conversations like you did. So thank you. The title... Uh, Frontline. It is a nod, surely, to COVID-19. You've got the Spanish flu that killed 50 million people. Um, And you've got, obviously, what we've been going through recently. Do you think that readers would find comfort in the fact that they know that something similar has happened before and that that nature of human spirit has um, overcome it and that that would give us all hope, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was always interested in the Spanish flu of uh, 1918. Uh, I'd always been interested in what happened and, and how it spread around the world. And we've got to remember that the Spanish flu killed 50 to 100 million people globally. Uh, it was absolutely devastating, killed far more people than died in the First World War, um, civilians and, and soldiers put together. And when I thought about this novel, um, the, the the headline, um, the title screamed out, you know, front line. We've we've been, you know, clapping on our doorsteps um, last year, haven't we, to celebrate the wonderful work of our NHS frontline heroes. Um, and at the same time, we had people sacrificing um, so much, um, even their own lives, um, in the trenches during the First World War. They were the, they were on the military front line. But in the same way, they had a sense of duty, um, which they didn't shirk. And we owe so much to them. And that's why I've dedicated Frontline to them, to to Frontline workers, wherever they are, um, and in whatever era that we've depended on them. Um, And, you know, I, I, I think we have a debt. We often think the world of our Frontline heroes when we're in a crisis, and then we forget all about them. 
Um, so I do hope that the legacy of, of my my novel uh, will endure and that we, we never forget the frontline workers and everything they do. I think that's so true. And I, I hope that too, you know, going forward, that this is a piece of history where we do keep that in our minds about all the hard work that everybody's been doing. And talking of hard work, what I find really fascinating is why during the pandemic, during arguably your most busiest time of the year, um, with everything that's been going on with COVID, most people were baking banana bread or doing DIY. Um, but you decided to write a book, a fiction book, something that you'd not done before. Well, just like everybody else, um, one tires of talking about uh, this pandemic um, 24-7. Wall-to-wall um, um, COVID-19 gets everybody down. Um, and there were times, uh, particularly during lockdown, where um, I needed to escape. I needed to be more creative and imaginative. And I, I'd always wanted to write a novel. I, I, I've done a bit of writing uh, in, in my life and in my career. And I, I, set, um, I set about starting to write and, and absolutely thoroughly enjoyed the process. So the characters came to life and I would draw on what was going on today. And there are so many parallels between what's going on now and what happened then. Um, you, you know, the way people behave, some people... In some people, it brings out the best in people. They volunteer to help others. They're kind, they're gentle, um, and they're self-sacrificing. Other people, it, it brings out the worst in them. They become selfish and uh, and they want to blame everybody else. Uh, and it is fascinating how people behave in adversity. So I've incorporated a lot of that, um, but I've I think I've um, uh, concentrated on the good in people um, and and the things that we can be grateful for the kindness and the and the gentleness of most people and so I hope that despite the fact that this is set in a war and uh, during a, a, a pandemic of 1918 that what comes across is hope um, and um, kindness and sacrifice and duty uh, and the message I hope is is a an optimistic one at the end of the book. Well, I personally felt that I did feel that it, you know uplifted me and made me think that you know perhaps all this anxiety that that we've been living under, you know, that there is hope that we've been there before, and that's that is the nature of the human spirit. So, thank you for that positivity. Um, what I want to know is, are you going to carry that on? You know, it's a three part series. So, have you planned it already? Um, and will you be sticking to the same time frame as well or exploring other time zones at all no the the sequel um which uh, uh i've nearly completed um it will carry on with the same characters it'll be the evolution of their careers um and and their uh, and their romance uh, there will be other uh, uh, characters coming along, but I continue the, the same family um, dynasty, if you like, um, and the medical advances of what happens next. Um, and I've already got um, the, the third book in the trilogy uh, planned out in my head. haven't got anywhere near to um, starting that one yet. But um, yes, I'm hoping that the sequel to the, the debut novel will, will come out next year. Can't wait. And we have, myself included, some avid readers here who are waiting for those. So do send us early <laughs> copies of that We'll be really enjoying those. Thank you. Now, talking of characters, um, we've got a question here from one of our readers, Sarah. Hi, this is Sarah, and I'd like to ask Dr. Hillary which character or characters in Frontline he most identifies with and why? 
That's that's a really good question. Um, I, I think um, I, I haven't based any characters on myself, but I but I think Will um, it reminds me of my eldest son, who's a GP himself. He's a gentle giant. Uh, my eldest son's six foot five. Um, the description of Will is is I, I think uh, of my eldest son. He's um, devoted to his patients. Um, he's kind always. Um, and you know, I've I've always I've always thought he is the perfect um, character uh, to become a doctor. So I think Will is based on my eldest son. If if I was to say the closest person to me in the book, oh, it might be um, it might be one of the. Uh, the, the captains who recruit Grace as an ambulance driver, who's a bit flippant and a bit sort of, <laughs> it's a bit flippant and a little bit sort of mash-like um, in, in terms of his attitude to the war. He's probably a little bit uh, battle-hardened and a bit cynical. Um, that's probably more like me. Excellent. That was really interesting insight there. Thank you. Um, we've got some more questions from Sue. And she wants to know, in the, this process of writing your first fiction debut, do you have any friends who are authors? Have they given you advice? And do you let any of your TV colleagues read your book, um, you know, before it was finished or in that editing process? To be honest, um, it, I, I just raced through this book and, and I, it never occurred to me to ask for uh, too much advice. I, I just seemed to know where it was going, what I was doing. Um, obviously, I have a huge debt to my editor, um, uh, Luke Brown, who who was very uh, inspiring and helpful with suggestions about you know tweaking this or tweaking that. Um, I got Lorraine Kelly to read it in its uh, early stage, and and she loved it and was kind enough to give me a quote, um, and then. As a pundit, Jeffrey Archer used to come. Is still coming into our studio at Good Morning Britain, and and uh, we sent him a copy, and he was very gracious enough to say he loved it, and uh, and gave me a quote for the front cover, which, which is extraordinary. Um, so so it was it was after the event that Jeffrey um, and, and I had a chat, but nevertheless, it was great to have that support. That's amazing. That is, I bet that. Were you nervous though? Like, were you? Was it more nerve wracking with like people like Lorraine that you work with forever? haven't you you know did you feel that sense of trepidation yeah, of course I mean I've known Lorraine long enough to know that if she thought it was a you know if it, if, it, if it was gonna be a, 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 a you know a, a dud she'd have let me know uh, luckily she said that not only did she enjoy it but her, uh, her her parents enjoyed it as well so that was very encouraging and uh, uh, one or two people who saw the early copies uh, got back to me straight away and said wow um, you, you know surprised that uh, it was such a good read and, and that that really for me it's it's about people enjoying it it's it's not so much about sales but if people enjoy what I've written that that gives me a a really good uh, a good feeling that's that's what I wrote it for for people to enjoy I think that's it I agree with that it was a surprise to me not because I doubted you because you're multi-talented but to actually succeed in fiction it's quite a craft and you did nail it so well done so uh, we've got two questions from Stella her first question she's phoned in and the second question the line went a little bit ropey so I'm going to read that out for you hello um this is Stella from Staffordshire I have two questions for Dr Hillary firstly you are a big fan of not limiting yourself and being multi-talented how do you find time to fit it all in <laughs> You know the phrase, Stella, um, 
if you want something done, ask a busy man to do it. I think it's true to some extent. Um, the the pandemic that I've been covering for, for, for the last couple of years nearly has been a very um, challenging uh, time professionally. Um, it's meant doing a, a great deal of uh, research and painstakingly looking at all the data. And I, I needed to um, to escape from that. So whilst you can park that in one corner, uh, I think it is possible to to do something else. Um, it, as I say, it's an escape for me. Um, but I found myself getting quite engrossed in the in the fiction, in the imagination. Um, and I, I think because I was quite stressed um, and challenged by the pandemic, I, I think the adrenaline stayed within my system and enabled me to keep going with, with the writing. Um, so for me, it, it was um, I, I was I was in top gear already. I think so. Uh, you know, I, I just I, I just stayed at top speed and kept going. Her other question was um, that you've been around all the literary festivals and you're used to obviously to doing medical talks and so on. But how different was it to be talking all things literature instead? Um, it, it was it was interesting, very interesting, because uh, the uh, the questions started off as, you know, what was the process of writing like? Uh, how did you um, develop the characters and how did you find the names of the characters? Um, but, but but often um, people would say, you know, what medical research did you do? What what was the medicine and the nursing like at the time? So it, it was quite interesting that a lot of the audience would uh, come around to asking a lot of medical questions, um, and they would ask me what my opinions are on the medical situation today and the state of the NHS. My my book, my first book, doesn't um, uh, encroach on the um, foundation of the NHS in 1948 at that stage. Um, but nevertheless, people are interested in the history of the development of medicine and nursing. Um, so whilst the, the questions were related to the novel, um, they were also um, highly associated with um, people wanting medical information about the here and now as well as the past and as I say there are so many parallels it was it was fascinating definitely and thanks so much Hilary for those fantastic answers and listeners for your brilliant questions remember if you've got an all-important question to ask your favorite author then check out the my weekly website to find out which big authors are coming up on the podcast that's www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts and of course, send those questions to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk. After all these fascinating insights from Hillary, you're sure to want to get a copy of Frontline. Don't forget, you can swipe down to the episode notes to buy your copy. Chapter 3, Book Post. Here we are in our final chapter with author Dr. Hillary Jones. After rifling through our stacks, the book that has made it through the My Weekly Magical Bookshop letterbox this week is The Plant Hunter by T.L. Mogford. As always, we promise not to reveal any spoilers, but just enough to entice you to read. The blurb says an exhilarating new adventure for fans of The Binding of the Familiars, real-life Indiana Jones characters risking their lives to find the exotic plants that fill our gardens today. Set in 1867, King's Road, Chelsea, is a sea of plant nurseries, capturing the Victorian obsession with rare and exotic flora. 
It's a dangerous world that they find themselves in back in 1867, scaling uncharted lands and all the perils they contain in the search for exotic plants, in particular the elusive icicle tree. Dr. Hillary, why did you choose this book and was it the element of adventure? Uh, my mother's always been um, uh, fascinated with uh, her plants in the garden. Uh, it, it's, her, it's the love of her life and uh, she's often tried to persuade me to get more involved. She knows all of the, the names of the different plants and um, it, it occurred to me that... Um, well, I, I kind of knew that a lot of these plants come from different parts of the world. And the book explores who brought them here, um, where did they come from? And as you say, this Victorian obsession with w wonderful plants, they were the pride of, of people's private gardens. People boasted about the plants they were growing that were exotic and rare. Um, and of course, uh, it begs the question, who brought them here? We know that Darwin brought specimens back from the, the, the other side of the globe uh, in his day. But since then, um, hundreds of explorers would have brought samples back and planted them and nurtured them and, and, and had them grow in our gardens in this country. Um, some some plants that were that wonderful and some that were not so good, the ones that we would like to do without because they're so fast growing and like weeds. So this this story just um, uh, I, I saw the um, the synopsis of the book and I just thought I have to read that. So it, it's great because you've got the adventure of the um, uh, exploration and and travelling around the world with the corruption and wealth and intrigue uh, all in there. With it. you know you wouldn't think that plants and intrigue like that goes goes hand in hand, but it does. I have to agree. I mean, I am like you. I am anything but green-fingered. But I found that the plant references, you know, the, the detail in the flora and the fauna, talking even, you know, about the, where he says about the woolly aphid outbreak and how it jumped from the apples to the pyracanthus. I have no idea what a pyracanthus <laughs> is, but I was enthralled by it. But there's also that sense of history. And I was interested to know what his background, what the author's background was with this, because there's so much detail in the Chinese empire and, you know, how, for example, they wear white when they're mourning. And, you know, that kind of research, that detail that he's put in there, did it intrigue you? Because I know I felt like I'd gone to China over the weekend when I read it. Well, as you know, um, T.L. Mogford, the author, does have um, a, a history uh, in his family of, uh, of, of plant hunters. Um, so I think he's picked up from where his ancestors left off and he's imagined, like I did with my grandfather in front line, I suppose, imagining what their life must have been like and, uh, and taking it one step forward and uh, uh, creating some imaginary scenes around around um, what clearly did happen and and uh, uh, and, and what must have uh, must have absolutely fascinated and captured uh, enthralled uh, the people who were involved in these these exploring for these plants you know looking at uh, samples of, of this one a red one a yellow one a, a glorious um, aroma coming from that petal and uh, and thinking if I bring this back to England I can make a big profit out of that and no one's ever seen this before it was exploration of of the new world wasn't it it must have been a an amazing time what I found really interesting was this contrast between the delicate shoots the delicate petals and the plants there the seeds that he was collecting and then the terror of the tribes following them and, you know, they're having this adventure both by land and sea and um, they're cascading down the rapids in their flotillas 
And then they've got the even the pirates, you know, following them. Where was your favourite location? Did you enjoy sort of the plant cellars in London on the King's Road? Or was it Shanghai? Or even just going through the depths, the inland of China that captivated you? Yeah, I think the Yangtze River scenes are, are, are great. Uh, I've only been to China once. But uh, yeah, for me, he, he captured uh, what I saw there, um, but kind of extrapolated that into a, a much more vivid uh, s- scenario. Um, I enjoyed it all. Cape of Good Hope as well, uh, sailing around there. Uh, it is like a real life Indiana Jones, isn't it? As well, incorporated into the into the into the horticulture. Absolutely. I mean, my heart rate. I had my watch on. My heart rate. Usually, I'm low. I'm bratty. My heart rate had just gone up because you just didn't know what was going to happen. Who was going to jump out of the bushes next? You know, it was a ride, an exhilarating ride, and it did feel like Indiana Jones to me. But I was particularly drawn to Harry. I really was willing him on. I wanted it to work, even when he'd, you know, got lost and he had to take his boots off because they were following him and I won't spoil it anymore. But I was really drawn to him that he'd gone through all this adversity, you know, with his family Mm. and he'd come out the other end and he was still fighting. Was he a character that you were drawn to? Oh, absolutely. You know, he he starts off, doesn't he, as an unprepossessing salesman um, working in the nurseries of King's Road. And uh, and what he actually ends up doing is, is quite extraordinary. So uh, I suppose it, it, it's a tale of someone who makes good uh, from humble beginnings and, uh, you know, draw, draws on, on that and, and finds strength and capabilities within himself and takes advantage of, of, uh, of every situation that comes his way. And personally, I loved Mrs. Lockhart, Clarissa. She was this female, you know, who's fearless. She drove a hard bargain. She was known as the formidable woman. I loved it. I won't spoil it, but some of the things that she did during it, she just surprised you. And I loved that. And I felt that I could relate to perhaps Grace in Frontline, where her dad called her a rebel. You know, there was that link, wasn't there, between the two strong female characters. Yes. How important is it in a historical setting to show these strong females? Well, I mean, we, we talk about feminism today as, as a new thing. In fact, we've had very strong um, uh, feminists throughout uh, throughout history. Um, just researching my, my next book and, and and thinking about Elizabeth Garrett Anderson and uh, and Maud Abbott, who who were two very uh, uh, two of the first doctors to qualify um, against all the odds. Against you know they they were rebels. They they just didn't take no for an answer. They kept applying to medical schools until they got in. So I, I think it's great to, to hear about the, you know the, the suffragettes and and everything they achieved against such adversity and such prejudice. So I think a character like that in a book, it's certainly in the Plant Hunter and it's in Frontline. I think these are good storylines, and uh, the, the the more of these we we have, the better. Absolutely, and I thought you'd be pleased with the few medical references there with Clarissa. You know, taking on her mum's experience when she did a bit of work with the Florence Nightingale nurses and so on. I did see that coming through. I yeah. thought you'll like those bits. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> excellent. And there were, again, just like your book, there were some more graphic parts. You know, I'm thinking of the execution cages, the rotting flesh, and. Um, it, it sat fine with me, actually. I felt it was a good balance between sort of excitement and reality because to some extent, there's no getting away from some of these graphic things that happened in the past, is there? And is this something that you personally in front line that you thought was important to, to show that reality? 
Well, yeah, I mean, Frontline just touches on some of the, the horrors. I mean, writing about the horrors doesn't come anywhere near to, to what people would have experienced personally. My grandfather, as I say, was on the Somme uh, and was wounded three times and, and sent back to fight three times. But when he returned from the war, he never spoke about it. The horrors were just too awful. And most most soldiers who returned could never bring themselves to talk about it because they didn't want to relive it. Many of them had PTSD. Um, unbelievably, shell shock was a word that was banned uh, by the military until 1916. It wasn't recognised. Well, it was recognised that they didn't want to recognise it or give it a name because they didn't want to give soldiers an excuse for leaving their posts. Um, but but yes, uh, the, 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 it's only right that a, that a book about... Uh, what actually went on reflects to some extent how awful it was without um, turning the reader off. I think we have to we have to find a balance between explaining how awful it was and, and not um, not going for for the shock element. Uh, I, I think uh, if you can if you can work the story uh, in such a way that people get the idea, and it leaves a lot to their imagination without making them feel ill. I, I think uh, that's the way forward. It certainly worked for me. I've got a very uh, small threshold to things <laughs> like that. But I was okay with both both books. You Good. know, I just felt it was just enough, just enough. And um, I'm a big fan of children's literature. And The Plant Hunter for me had echoes of the late Eva Robotson's Journey to the River Sea, and more recently, Catherine Rundell's The Explorer. Uh, this. This sort of, The Plant Hunter was kind of a grown-up version of these in a way, um, together with classic 80 Days Around the World. That sense of adventure, um, almost tasting the land that's described in the pages. Did The Plant Hunter remind you of any other books that you sort of read? Yes, it had echoes of, of lots of lots of adventure books, didn't it? And uh, uh, But it's unique in a way. It's, it's unique in that it's surrounded, it's it's sort of based on the plant uh, element uh, that's what sets it apart doesn't it i suppose like frontline is is uh, based on a lot of medical uh, detail uh, and that sets that apart this, this does the same in the world in the world of um, horticulture and, and 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 plants so um yeah, but it was reminiscent of lots of books, but I can't, I, I, you know, you, you've stumped me because I can't think of anything in particular. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> uh, I think that's it, isn't it? You know, I just, I was thinking the other day, where did he come up with this idea? How many other stories are out there that we all take for granted? Like we all take the fact that these exotic plants were brought over during that time and we didn't understand what they went through to get it. And I was thinking at the weekend, I wonder what other stories are there just waiting to be told. So it is it is exciting, isn't it, to be able to have that being brought to life for Absolutely. him. I mean, we all know about, we all know about sort of tobacco being brought here and, and potatoes being brought here. Those are the, the two things that I got from school that, you know, just two things that were brought here from, from the new world. But of course, there were thousands of different plants and thousands of different foodstuffs that, that uh, luckily we can enjoy today that, that with the result of all that adventure then. It does. I, I mean, for me, like I would love to be good in the garden I really would I just it throws me all the Latin names and so on and I kind of give up I should try harder but for me the plant hunter it kind of brought that world to life for me and it did make it exciting so I think he's done a good job I also think that it screams 
needing to be made into a film. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, no, I think it'd make a great film. I can just see it now. I, I, I'd like to do the dramatisation. Excellent. Yes, we could all have li- little parts in it, couldn't we? Being explorers and getting the cuttings. So that would be wonderful. Definitely. Thanks for choosing it, Hilary. What an exceptional book. And if you listeners want to grab a copy, then don't forget to swipe down to episode notes and find out about its release in February 2022. Thanks so much, Dr. Hilary Jones, for coming on the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop podcast. Do drop by again soon. Time at My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop has come to an end for this episode. Join us next time for more big name authors, stories and extracts read just for you and our favourite book recommendations landing wherever you are. Whether you're out with the dogs, in a pair of sturdy walking shoes, heading into work or cosied up at home in your comfiest slippers. If you love fiction, cooking and interviews with your favourite celebrities, then you'll love My Weekly. And as a listener to the Magical Flying Bookshop, you can try 13 issues of the print or digital magazine for just £6. Head to myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts or call 0800 318 846 and quote the offer code MWPOD. That's MWPOD to save more than 60% on the cover price. Check the episode notes for details and terms. That's all for now. Pick up your copy of My Weekly and escape with our fiction stories. And until you pop into the bookshop again, have a wonderful booktastic week. I'm Claire Gill and this was My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop, sponsored by Pavers, your perfect style.